Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 2nd of February 2021, just 2022, yeah. just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Debbie Evans, our very own nursing correspondent. Um, well, mandatory vaccination uh, is apparently being scrapped, or is it? Well, let's uh, have a look at what uh, Sajid Javid said. He tweeted this uh, little bit of video out this morning, so let's or yesterday, sorry. Let's uh, let's see what he had to say. It's only right that our policy on vaccination as a condition of deployment is reviewed. So I ask for fresh advice, including from the UK Health Security Agency and England's chief medical officer. In weighing up the risks and opportunities of this policy once again, there are two new factors. The first is that our population as a whole is now better protected against hospitalisation from COVID-19. Omicron's increased infectiousness means that at the peak of the recent winter spike, one in 15 people had a COVID-19 infection, according to the ONS. Around 24% of England's population has had at least one positive COVID-19 test. And as of today in England, 84% of people over 12 have had a primary course of COVID-19 vaccines and 64% have been boosted, including over 90% of over 50s. The second factor is that the dominant variant, Omicron, is intrinsically less severe. When taken together with the first factor, that we now have greater population protection, the evidence shows that the risk of presentation to emergency care or hospital admission with Omicron is approximately half of that for Delta. Given these dramatic changes, it is not only right but responsible to revisit the balance of risks and opportunities that guided our original decision last year. While vaccination remains our very best line of defence against COVID-19, I believe that it is no longer proportionate to require vaccination as a condition of deployment through statute. So, Madam Deputy Speaker, today I am announcing that we will launch a consultation on ending vaccination as a condition of deployment in health and all social care settings. Subject to the responses and the will of this House, the Government will revoke the regulations. So there you go. Now, he's very careful with his words, even though he was tripping over his words. I'm not sure whether, he, whether it was because he didn't really believe what he was saying. But nonetheless, uh, a condition of deployment, not a condition of employment. Yes. So that, that is uh, a very interesting statement. Um, and uh, um, so the question is, this is going to, for a consultation. Who's going to be consulted? Uh, and what's the outcome of that consultation going to be? So he has announced uh, a U-turn on this pending the outcome of that consultation. We've got to wait and see uh, where that goes. Can I, can I just say, I would imagine the consultation will be stakeholders. It will be a stakeholder oh, consultation. Oh, it will be, yeah, yes, without doubt. Um, so uh, this was being uh, tweeted out this morning by Together and uh, retweeted by NHS 100K. Um, vaccine mandate stopped in response to Esther McVeigh demanding <clears throat> clarity. Uh, Sajid Javid states, the deadline is no longer applicable. There will be no further enforcement of the regulations. Um, so, and the tweet saying there is no requirement, therefore, for a first dose by the 3rd of February. And this is what was being uh, told to NHS staff that if they hadn't 
had their first dose by the 3rd of February, then they were effectively being put on, put on a disciplinary uh, process with a view to redeployment or where there were no jobs available, then of course, uh, what happens at that point? Uh, it was clearly going to be uh, people losing their jobs at that point. Um, but again, it's on the basis of a consultation. So um, anyway, this is what uh, the uh, uh, Together campaign and NHS uh, 100K were saying. Uh, the U-turn by Sajid Javid on mandatory vaccination is a victory. We still need to end vaccine passports in Wales. Scotland and Northern Ireland, as well as end mass testing and using kids as adult shields. The Public Health Act needs amending and all emergency powers, uh, sorry, and an end to all emergency powers. Absolutely right. The COVID-19 Act needs to go. Um, but uh, NHS 100K also saying this, please not, do not let yourselves get distracted by party gate and the scrapping of mandates. Uh, and they retweeted or they quoted the tweet from James Melville saying the changes being proposed to the Human Rights Act uh, are to strip individuals of their basic human rights and freedoms. The changes to this act drastically reduce any protection from government draconian measures. Uh, the refor these reforms cannot become statute. Now, I have to say, I'm getting huge quantities of email uh, on this, but it is an issue that we've covered several times on the programme. We're going to mention it again. The most recent time was on Friday. Uh, this was Dominic Raab uh, announcing the changes to the Human Rights Act. And another point I'll make is, uh, that this concept of a new Bill of Rights is something that the UK column has been uh, highlighting since it was originally mooted by um, uh, Nick Clegg, I think it was, in 2010. So it's going back to 2010, this idea, and it's been pushed and pushed and pushed over the last uh, 12 years uh, to this point. So the key phrase here is, uh, of course, this idea uh, of... Uh, the public interest. So uh, the proposed new legislation, the government says, aims to strike a proper balance between individuals' rights, personal responsibility, and the wider public interest. And this is a new concept. They're claiming that they're going to stay within the remit of the European Convention on Human Rights um, and so on. But our argument has been from the beginning of this, of course, that human rights and everybody's, <clears throat> everybody's uh, uh, wish for human rights, this is the wrong approach. Uh, the British Constitution is based on the idea of unalienable rights, God-given rights. A human being can't give you your rights, but the idea of human rights is based on the principle of a blank sheet of paper. And uh, in other words, you start from the, the position that you have no rights except those which are given to you by another human being. Uh, inevitably, whenever another human being takes that role on for themselves, uh, those rights get changed or removed. Uh, and in this case, as many people are pointing out, uh, the right to bodily autonomy yeah. uh, is the one which is likely to be changed or as a result of this. So as we've mentioned a few times, we've got to mention it again because the consultation runs until the 8th of March 2022. There is a consultation on this. Uh, it's called Human, Ra Human Rights Act Reform, a Modern Bill of Rights. It's at consult.justice.gov.uk slash human dash rights slash human dash rights dash act dash reform. Everybody needs to get involved in this consultation uh, and make sure that your views are well and truly understood by the government. Um, number of interesting things there. The first thing that uh, came to my mind, Mike, as you're working through that section is that you're going to 
uh, tweets in order to see what the, what the real dialogue is. And part of that is because, of course, the mainstream media in UK, certainly the BBC, will not engage with anybody that's got an opinion other than the government line. So if you want to understand what the public really think, you've got to ditch the BBC and the, uh, the bulk of the newspapers. You've got to start looking on social media for where the real dialogue is taking place. And I wonder whether we could just bring in um, Debbie and Debbie Evans here, because uh, Debbie and I were able to speak to some NHS professionals a few days ago. Uh, they were clearly very concerned about what was happening. And we know that many of them reacted very badly to Sajid Javid's talk because they thought that his delivery was very dismissive of claims by people in the NHS. So, Debbie, welcome. Um, just tell us a little bit about how you think the NHS staff are reacting to mandatory vaccinations. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's lovely to be here. Um, I've been speaking to a number of doctors over the last few days and they're scared. They're really, really scared because things that they're starting to hear things now um, and they're starting to take notes and they're really panicking. Um, the doctors that I've spoken to um, were very, very scared because of certain side effects that they were experiencing from being told to have the first jab and the second because they were so worried about losing their jobs. And now they didn't have to have the jab. I've also spoken to a, a care worker, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more, who has lost a baby. Um, she took the jab. She didn't realise that she was pregnant at the time. So in order to keep her job, she she feels that the vaccine was responsible for her losing the baby obviously we we don't have proof of that but they're very angry they're very upset um and they're very scared yes thank you thank you for that well you've been doing a huge amount of work in the background having a look at what the mhra has been saying and discussing in its board meetings and surprisingly the uh January board meetings seem to require some prompting to become visible on YouTube. It did appear after you poked the uh, uh, MHRA with a little bit of a stick to say, where is that report? It eventually went up. Um, so what we're going to try and do is take our audience into uh, one of their board meetings uh, to show you some really incredible things that are coming to light when you simply take the time to see what they're doing. So this is just the, introduct the introduction by the chairman to the January MHRA board meeting. It's, very sh it's a very short clip. In some ways, you can say, well, it doesn't show very much. But I think it shows the very comical, relaxed, almost childish attitude of the board itself in delivering information to the public. Let's have a look at this clip. Good morning. Welcome to the January 2022 board meeting held in public of the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, or the MHRA, as we prefer to call it. My name is Stephen Lightfoot, and I'm the chair of the board, and my role is to lead us through today's agenda. So for those of you who've not attended one of our meetings before, uh, I must start by saying that this is a board meeting held in public, and it is not a public meeting. Having said that, of course, when we finish our board business, we are going to provide an opportunity for members of the public to ask questions at the end of our meeting. It's also probably important to explain that our board is responsible for the strategic leadership of the agency, and it does not make individual regulatory decisions on specific products. 
as that's done very ably by the officials within the agency with the in, uh, independent advice of our expert committees. I also need to make you aware that today's meeting will be recorded so that we can publish the video on our websites to provide the opportunity for as many people as possible to observe our meeting. I think on that particular note, I'm particularly delighted that 80 people, that's actually a record for us, have registered to observe, observe our meeting live today. So we have 25 people representing patients or patient groups. We've got 30 people from industry, seven healthcare professionals and government officials, three representatives of the media, and 15 members of our own staff. So welcome to each and every one of you, and thank you very much for making the time to join us today. Now, with intro introductions in mind, I'd like to go around the screen and just introduce the members of the board to everyone watching. And I'd like to start, most importantly, with our chief executive, Dame June Rain. And I would just like to take the opportunity to congratulate June publicly on the announcement of her damehood in the 2022 New Year's Honours List. I know that I speak on behalf of the entire board, June, when I say that we're absolutely thrilled that you're receiving this very, very well-deserved honour, as it's not only reflects the personal contribution that you've made to public health and patient safety through your entire career, but it also reflects very well on the incredible work that the agency's done in response to the pandemic. So well done, June. And let's just give June a virtual uh, round of applause, please. That I think is completely appropriate. Well, Chairman, may I just say how grateful I am for your terribly kind words. And uh, as you say, this award uh, really does reflect the hard work, the commitment and the effort of so many people, particularly during the pandemic. And uh, on my part, I'm incredibly proud to work with a fantastic team here at the agency. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you, June. Uh, well, well deserved. So it is a team effort, and so if I just introduce and just ask each of the appropriate executive directors just to wave furiously at the screen when I call your name out. First of all, we've got our Chief Scientific Research and Innovation Officer, Dr. Mark Bailey. Give us a wave, Mark. Thank you. Uh, well, there you have it. Uh, Debbie described this board meeting as a love-in to me because the uh, adulation for Dame, uh, the Dame, was just overwhelming. Um, but the whole thing, you didn't actually see the people he was introducing mm. because they didn't appear on the screen. So conducted in a very cavalier, amateur way when the real topic is public safety. Uh, Debbie, before we take people in to have a look at uh, the detailed um, subjects as they were covered in that, that um, board meeting, just what was your general take? Just very quickly, what was your general take on the meeting? Well, the loving went right through the meeting. It didn't stop at that. There was it was all self-congratulatory. Um, and, and I really would say to anybody that's watching, if we need to be clicking into these MHRA board meetings, because not many people do, they need to know that we're watching them. So hopefully, if everyone clicks in, they'll get the message that we're watching them, um, because really they they well, you'll get onto it, I know, but it's it's quite flabbergasting to me that they're broadcasting this type of material and we can find out so much from a board meeting. Indeed we can. And if we just put this slide up on the screen, this is just a capture of the YouTube uh, video. When you go to, to the YouTube place, you'll see. But uh, what I wanted to highlight is this board meeting, which is about the effects of vaccines effectively on the whole population. And we've got 
um, the uh, millions of adverse effects. There's only 64 views, or there was first thing this morning when I looked at it. And I'm making the suggestion that it should be uh, 10.64 million people because these are the individuals that are controlling our lives through the vaccines. So let's get in and see what was extraordinary about this uh, meeting. Well, the first thing was that the chairman focused on a record number of people watching. I think this is a sign of fear because they now realize, <clears throat> excuse me, that the public knows where to go and look to see what they're saying and doing. And so he had to make the comments about the record number of people watching. Then we had the love in, which was truly sickening. Um, then this was interesting. He went on to conflicts of interest, but these were sort of skated over. Uh, I'm sure Debbie will comment on these in a minute, but Microsoft, he mentioned a conflict of interest, but said, well, really, well, it isn't a conflict of interest. And so that was dismissed. Meanwhile, the gentleman put, uh, Gentleman, lady, gentleman, I think sat lady. in on the meeting, Raj Long, who also is there to represent uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So if you talk about conflict of interest, I mean, it's a, it's a non-starter. The thing is, is uh, uh, well, I'm running out of words. Um, what is the agency con concerned about? It's concerned about where it will be in the future. It's not primarily concerned with the safety of the public. It is about what it will be as an organization in the future. And here was the headline, MHRA, or sorry, the discussion point, MHRA turns into one agency. So this is all about their view on transformation. And also this was fascinating that suddenly they've brought in specialists in reputation management. Why, why do you think that would be, Mike? Well, the only reason you bring in a reputation management specialist is if you think that your reputation has been damaged somehow. Absolutely. So they're worried about the number of people watching and they're having to bring in reputation management specialists. This is because the MHRA knows they're under the spotlight. Sorry, I'm just going to say those are timestamps on the left-hand yes, side. Yes, yes, thank you for that. So the, the, the time on the left-hand side is an approximate timestamp so that when you go to the video, you can search out these specific points and save some time. And thank you very much to Debbie for doing that. So here's um, at minute 17, June Rain is now talking about the one agency, which is apparently launched on the 10th of January, safety and surveillance. Is this about health or is this about security? Mike, it's difficult to tell. Um, and she says it's a new era for the agency. That's the central message. Uh, then we get on to monoclonal antibodies and the new antivirals. And this is something that Debbie's been warning about. But what did they say? Well, they are thoroughly proud of the 168 million doses of vaccine, but they're still apparently not worried about the vaccine adverse effects. Uh, then they give themselves a nice pat on the back for a meeting uh, between Christmas and the new year, which was to approve Pfizer, Paxlovid, and, and they are crowing that they were using their own time. I wonder how many other people were actually having to work over Christmas, particularly the uh, medical staff in the NHS. Uh, more thanks to themselves at 21 minutes, 36 seconds. Uh, June Rain, wonderful to have recognition for the team efforts. So this is all back to the love in. And we'll just go through this one, 27, minute 27. Uh, we've we've uh, got a thanks again for the proposed uh, Molnupiravar register. 
Uh, we've got reducing office space because they're going to have more staff working from home and under a supposed hybrid model. Everything is to do with their organization over and above safety. But they're saying if you've got family and friends that would like to apply for a job, now's the time to do it. So any uh, UK column viewers out there who think they would like uh, to have an input into the MHRA, there's your opportunity. Um, they're looking at how to accelerate clinical trials and get more patients to participate. They're looking how best to develop innovative products. And then this is interesting, safety and, and safety adverse reaction, yellow card increasing reports from patients. So apparently they want to get in more reports from patients, but absolutely no detail on how they're going to do it. And uh, this one here was a plea from a lady who's present on the board called Mercy. She said, I can't hear, I can't hear. So the board meeting over Zoom didn't go particularly well. And um, if I just bring this in at an hour, the Cumberledge report, which is very significant. Uh, we've got a patient safety commissioner to be appointed. Uh, we've got a recognition by June Rain that the safety system needs overhauling, but Mike, we've just used it to work out the safety of a whole vaccine. Yeah. So something is out of step here. And then this is interesting because they were asked how they're using AI and apparently it's only being used in a very small segment. Again, Debbie will comment on this. So all that money spent. And then here, MHRA, state of art, unique USP. Not quite sure what that is. We'll find out in a second but they're partnering all the people they can. And then they're coming in and liaising with this very interesting organization, the Oxford Internet Institute. So Debbie, there was a little overview there. We've got the MHRA supposedly talking about safety, but you're not quite sure of actually what they're doing. They're promoting future trials. Um, what's your take on what you heard in, in that uh, part of the board meeting? Well, the, I mean, where do I start? I mean, and you've only highlighted points in the board meeting, there are so many more. But I mean, with regard to safety, clearly they don't want to give any safety data. Alison Cave was, um, what can I say, how can I describe her as, uh, she wouldn't answer the question, basically. She wouldn't answer any questions about safety. And I think with regards to AI, they seem to, and it was very interesting because Mike has always said, you know, how are they inputting the data for the serious adverse reactions? Are they using AI? Are mistakes being made? Clearly, this AI guy said that this is state of the art stuff, but they're only using AI at the moment for lateral flow readers. Um, and June Rain was quite concerned about the ethics because AI is not regulated at all, but this is the way that they seem to be going. Um, and so safety will be governed by artificial intelligence in this whole new transformation. But they did say that, you know, they were worried about how this was going to affect patient safety, because how would the patient's voice be heard? Um, and I think very worryingly, the molnupiravir, it was only mentioned in passing at 27 minutes, I think it was, about there being a molnupiravir regis register. As Mike has been saying, and as I've been saying, molnupiravir is a dangerous drug and it's carcinogenic. It's been proven to be carcinogenic. And ironically, today is 
World Awareness Day for cancer. And I know that we've got a lot more to say about cancer, but these drugs that are coming down the pipeline that people may not know about, including the new AstraZeneca um, uh, vaccine that's coming down the line, no one's hearing about it. And unless you listen to the board meetings and you see what they're planning and their agenda, you can clearly see that safety is the last thing um, on, on the list, because this is all about transformation into making the MHRA into some kind of global leader. And of course, we can't match, uh, We sorry, no other country can match the UK, because as they said in the board meeting, it's only the UK that has the NHS data. So that gives us our unique selling point. So this is where all of this is coming. And it's terrifying because patients, um, patients, assurance committees are now being set up patient safety commissioners why wasn't this done right at the beginning why is this only being done now debbie that that's the key point so let's let's just break can break. i just can i just say before ahead, we do yeah. that because i just wanted to, to uh, just ask debbie just tell me again what they said about about their use of ai what did they say they were doing well interestingly mike and, and i think i'd like you to listen to it because they don't seem to be doing anything with ai they don't they're doing and when they were asked for an example because the members of the board didn't quite know how it was being applied um, the guy uh, Jordan, Jordan who was heading the presentation said that at the moment it was only being used for uh, lateral flow readers so it's not being used at all they don't know what they're doing with it well that that is really that is really surprising that at board level they don't know what they're doing with it because yeah. they have issued a freedom of freedom of information answer to someone who asked about the 1.5 million pound ai system uh, that they uh, were using for the yellow card system and it turned out that what that was actually doing was was making machine learned uh, comparisons of what people were writing down on the uh, yellow card reports and adjusting them as necessary for the yellow card system. So they're certainly using AI for that, but they haven't. They don't seem to know that at board level. That's that's quite incredible. The whole board meeting is incredible, to be fair. And um, the AI, they're talking about augmentation again of different systems and machine learning. So basically, I think if you put a, an adverse reaction in in the future, it'll be governed by AI. No individual human being will see that report. It will go on an algorithm is what I'm understanding. Yes. OK, so let's just follow through. Here's the appointment and operation of the Patient Safety Commissioner. This is uh, this is the advert on gov.uk. And if we bring in some detail, it's a top priority. Patient safety remains a top priority for government. Enormous emphasis is placed on patient safety. Uh, and here we are, the safety commissioner will add to and enhance this existing work to improve patient safety by acting as a champion for patients, helping us learn more about what we can do to put patients first. But they're not putting patients first. Nothing the MHRA is doing at the moment. And the fact that they are now recruiting this individual after the vaccine program has taken place just determines you know, what the true agenda is. And here comes in again mention of Baroness Cumberledge, uh, because this is something that clearly they did react to. I'll get De Debbie to comment on that in a second. Uh, but the strange thing about this uh, appointment is I've had to produce a video of what they're talking about, because instead of saying we are going to recruit a person, they've done a survey 
which is so long, I had to take a video clip of it. This is a survey about what the job should be and who have they consulted. Uh, well, they've consulted stakeholders, Mike. Mm -hmm. So we don't even know who these stakeholders are, but they've all had to look at the proposals, whether they should be paid, what their safety remit would be. Should it be run as a business? Do they report to the government? It goes on and on and on. And uh, here you can see that uh, the video clip is needed in order to see the background to the recruitment process. So they haven't recruited anybody. They haven't even said what their qualifications in safety should be, but all this stakeholder information has been carried out. So I'm going to say that this is more of the MHRA waffle, which takes people's attention off what safety really is. And the other one, which I'll, I'll just bring up on screen now, if I can, here we are. This is the Oxford Internet Institute, which was mentioned because they said they're working in partnership. We didn't know anything about this organisation. Uh, well, here we are. It was funded as a full department of the University of Oxford in 2001. And the idea for a research centre focusing on the societal opportunities and challenges proposed by the rapidly developing Internet technologies was proposed by this Dr. Andrew Graham, but in came a lady called Dame Stephanie Shirley. Uh, she was running a software company, Exansa, and um, all of a sudden she's recognized the opportunity for the University of Oxford to assume a position of, quote, global leadership in this significant field. So are we dealing with patient safety, MHRA, or are we dealing with a club for global leaders? Well, and, and a new market being developed? A new market, but let's add this man who's part of the organization. He caught my attention uh, because he served as the first, let's bring it up on the screen, the first UK EM boy. Previous roles included Principal Private Secretary of the Prime Minister and High Commissioner for Australia. Alan was subsequent Permanent Secretary of the Department of, of Constitutional Affairs and Ministry of Justice and is a former chair of, quote, Joint Intelligence Committee. So are we dealing with the health of people or are we dealing with security? Uh, Debbie, just bring you back very quickly. What is the Cumberledge report and why has the MHRA been so uh, careful uh, of its dealings well, with it? The Cumberledge report was compiled a couple of years ago and um, highlighted huge safety issues within the MHRA. And Every board meeting up the Cumberledge report and what was startling on this board meeting was that at 1 hour 20, I believe, in the board meeting, if people want to go and have a look, June Rain highlights the Cumberledge report and says that, you know, we need a whole safety overhaul. And then she suggests that, you know, well, what can we do about this? Well, this report was done two years ago, June, Dr. June, Dame June Rain. So I would suggest that the work should have been done by now. But she's referring back to, well, should we look at Valparate? I mean, that was years ago and is still ongoing. So it's clear to me that the Cumberledge report has really, uh, it, it's being mentioned all the time, but nothing specific is being, is being done about it. And, you know, when we go back to um, artificial intelligence and machine learning, what Dame June Rain said about that was that they were going to find it useful for cases for dementia and cardiovascular. So I just wanted to quickly go back on that for, for Mike's question, that they feel that they're going to use AI for dementia and cardiovascular conditions primarily. 
Well, well said, because we'll just bring that up on screen. So if we just follow through some more timestamps for that board meeting, uh, you can see here that at 1 hour 57, uh, June Rain said exactly that. AI will be particularly helpful for dementia and cardiovascular, but need to keep in mind it's the patient and technology. And I think we are going to say to our audience, we are suspecting they know that dementia and cardiovascular problems are going to arise uh, because some of the medication, it would appear, may be causing the problems. Uh, we've got some, uh, we've got a public question coming in over Valneva there. Um, and um, also we've got uh, um, them talking about um, uh, specific adverse reactions, which they're saying are mild with no new safety concerns in respect of booster jabs, but we're not seeing the evidence to back it up. Um, if we go on through, it comes through at, right at the end of the meeting, two hours 29 to the yellow card making it mandatory for doctors and surgeons to report yellow cards. Now, this is classic because they're there for safety. Where does safety come in right at the end of the meeting? Let's just listen to this tiny little video clip, which shows how dismissive they are when somebody starts to ask questions of safety. Um, just because of the time, I'd like to take one more question, please, Rachel, and then we'll, we'll need to conclude. So if we could just make it a quick question and a very quick answer, please. Yeah, certainly. So um, I would suggest perhaps we take the question on yellow card because, again, we've had a number of questions on this area. So um, I have pulled them together. So uh, will the MHRA make it mandatory for clinicians and surgeons to report adverse events and complications to the yellow card scheme? And how can you increase awareness of yellow card? And then secondly, why is the data in the weekly yellow card report overwritten every week? And why does the MHRA not publish more of the data it captures in the same way as in the US? Okay, Alison, I'm sorry, it's back to you again. You're on mute, Alison. Thank you very much for the question. In terms of the mandatory reporting, we are looking into this. We're engaging with stakeholders um, and the wider NHS and, and the healthcare ecosystem um, around how we about the options for mandatory reporting. This has been considered in a number of situations, and we're looking to make recommendations and um, in, in the near future. In terms of the um, in terms of the uh, the yellow card system, uh, the yellow the agency remains committed to the transparency of information, and I think it's really important to note that we publish summaries of the entirety of our yellow card data on COVID-19 vaccines on a weekly basis, alongside a very careful and detailed summary of our assessments of that data. So, and this data is updated on a weekly basis, and that ensures that members of the public and the healthcare professionals have access to the most current information around vaccines. And that reflects both updates to historic cases and incorporates new data since the last data lock, lock point. And this enables us to provide a really clear and holistic picture of all of the data that's coming through to the agency on a weekly basis. And this is a very substantial report, which is available on our website. Um, the aggregated data is indeed made available in a PDF format. We are migrating to a new digital format for all medicinal products, including vaccines in the autumn, and that will follow the implementation of our transformative Safety Connect programme. 
That's great. I think a huge amount of work going on in this area and rightly so. So I really appreciate that, Alison. Um, look, I'm, I'm really sorry. We're, we're out of time, unfortunately. So, I'm... so would that be on a weekly basis then, Brian? I mean, uh, from the beginning, I have to say, because we set up the, I mean, Brian's going to mention the UK column yellow card uh, website in a second, but we set that up. And the first thing that was obvious was that the PDF uh, documents are full of errors. Uh, the second thing that was obvious was they are not allowing access to historic versions of those PDF documents. So unless you download them at the time, that's it. Um, and uh, and the third thing is, of course, the MHRA never provided any kind of searchable uh, access to that data. It's in a PDF. PDFs are an appalling format for that type of uh, for that type of data. And and the final point is that they never and they still haven't provided any kind of linkage between the individual reports and the individual reactions. So there's no way to look for trends between the, the reports and reactions. Perhaps you, you're, perhaps we should be seeing groups of reactions to, coming together with individual reports, but we have no way of finding out whether people are experiencing groups yeah. of reactions. So um, you know they have utterly failed on that. And we've got to remember, Alison Cave there, she is the, the new chief safety officer. And uh, so it is her job to do this. And her, I think her response there, Brian, was pathetic. Well, it was it was word soup. It was a smokescreen. Before I bring you back in, Debbie, and we've got an eye on the clock, so I'm going to say, please uh, uh, be concise when you respond. But you flagged up with me a couple of days ago that uh, you had a document from the MHRA which showed that when somebody had died of another pharmaceutical product, they committed themselves to investigating their deaths. So we'll bring that up on screen. People can freeze it and have a look at what's actually being said. So why is it that they're not investigating vaccine deaths and they are clearly not investigating vaccine deaths? I'll come back onto that point. But Debbie, your second point was that um, this one here, you, you had an email exchange with the MHRA in which they clearly admitted that they were making mistakes. And this was um, in connection with a baby which unfortunately uh, suffered uh, congenital defects. So that's the second part of that email. People can freeze uh, those email sections on screen. So if I just bring you back on screen, Debbie, um, just in a few words, tell us what the significance was of the, of the MHRA saying it was going to investigate a single death and what was the real significance of the statistics around the death of the baby? Well, on the first question, um, the doxycycline was the death that occurred, one death, um, and they decided to do an investigation on that one death. And my question is, why are you not doing an investigation on the 2,000 deaths? I think it's nearly 2,000 deaths that we've had with regards to the vaccine. Um, and then, sorry, I forgot. Oh, yes, the baby. Um, I'd, I'd noticed on the MHRA data because Mike had said, how accurate is it? And I noticed a case of a baby, um, an anacophallic baby. This is a baby that is only part of its brain. I was very, very concerned about this. So I wrote directly to the MHRA and clearly they've, make, they've made a mistake, but this is a very serious mistake and it includes neural tube defects that we would normally see with spina bifida. So if they're making this amount of, of errors, then how can we rely on their data for any information of, of accuracy at all? Yeah, 
Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Debbie. And just for our wider audience, uh, we've shown this before. Let's put it on screen again. This is how the MHRA safety scan works. They claim that they collect and monitor and regulate the pharmaceutical healthcare products and vaccines to ensure public, the public is safe. They collect information on vaccine adverse reactions, although they say that that's probably going to be under 10%. And then the key thing is, once they've got that data, they fail to carry out a quantitative risk assessment in order to prove that the, the, the vaccines are indeed safe. And these adverse reactions have come from somewhere else. And I'm going to suggest to our audience today that uh, this runaround is why Alison Cave can't actually come out with simpler explanations um, on how many people have been damaged by the vaccines. But we just prompt, if you haven't seen it, come to the UK Column website and you can search the MHRA's data, but uh, there is no quantitative risk assessment. Debbie, thanks very much. Um, okay, let's uh, let's move on to all-course mortality then. And uh, well, we've shown this graph many times. This is the Office for National Statistics, the number of deaths registered by week, England and Wales, 28th of December, 2019 to the 21st of January, 2022. Um, and look, what I want to highlight here is you've got, we've got the teal color there, which is what the ONS describes as deaths not involving COVID-19. We've got the light blue color there, which uh, says they say deaths which are involving COVID-19. And then we have the black dotted line, which is showing the five-year average. And uh, so what we may, people may notice if you're looking closely is if you look at uh, January 2020 uh, and all through 2020 and compare the five-year average line with uh, January to uh, 2021 and right the way through 2021, you find that uh, the five-year average data points are the same. And this was uh, a question of mine uh, at the time. What, why are they doing this? And uh, well, they say that this is the reason they're doing it. They're saying the average for 2015 to 2019 provides a comparison with the number of deaths expected per week in a usual non-pandemic year. So in other words, they decided that uh, because there were uh, extra deaths in 2020 and extra deaths in 2021, they would compare those extra deaths with the five-year average from 2015 and 2019 and ignore the deaths in 2020 and 21 for the purposes of the five-year average. So they could compare that those two years with what happened prior to the, quotes, pandemic. So that was their reason for doing that. They wanted to compare the two pandemic years with non-pandemic years. These are their words as they describe them, okay? So if we come back to this graph there, and you look at the uh, five-year average line in 2020, and then compare it to what's happening in 2022 on the right-hand side there, you'll see that the five-year average dots are in different positions. So something has changed. And I'm wondering what has changed. And then when we go and look, we discover that in fact, what they're doing now is they're calculating the five-year average based on 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, and 2021. But 2021 is, as they describe it, a pandemic year. And they said that they didn't want to use uh, 20, 2020 or 2021 in that data uh, because they wanted to compare the pandemic years with the non-pandemic years. So let's look and see what they're saying now. They're saying 2015 to 2019 five-year average was used to compare against deaths registered in 2020 and 2021 because it provides a comparison of the number of deaths expected per week in a usual brackets non-coronavirus pandemic year. 
The further we move away from the five years in question, the less robust the measure is because the changes in population numbers, age and structure. Uh, deaths registered in 2022 will be compared with the 2016, 17, 18, 19 and 21 five-year average, as 2021 is also a coronavirus pandemic year and does increase some of the expected deaths in a week. Other comparisons are also used, including week by week uh, and 2021 only. But what they say at the beginning of their latest report is, in the week ending 21st of January 2022, brackets week three, 12,776 deaths were registered in England and Wales, and this was 535 fewer deaths than the previous week, week two, and 8.6% below the five-year average. But this is the new five-year average. Uh, and so what we have is this situation that if you look on the right-hand side of the graph there, we have the appearance of significant reduction in excess mortality because the line, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the mortality is below the five-year average. But this is because they've changed the goalpost once again. Uh, and this is happening right the way through government statistics now. The goalposts have been changed. Uh, and so the question I have, Brian, is why are they doing this? To mislead the public. It's fraud on the public because they do not want the, the public to understand what the true impact of, of the so-called pandemic was. And of course, if the true statistics came out, we would see that there was nothing to be scared of. So that's, that is uh, a very good point. And uh, we now need to challenge the Office for National Statistics, statistics on this, sorry, and, and get uh, a proper answer from them because uh, it seems, what are they wanting to do? This, of course, will result in headlines in the mainstream press. Ex, uh, you know, mortality well below the five-year average. Where, uh, and and let's not worry about uh, well, what vaccine deaths? What what what? Uh, well, they're not worried about them. No, right? no, but, they are but, not, no, I know. I it's know. justifying <laughs> it's justifying mainstream headlines. So so let's uh, let's keep an eye on that now. Uh, let's come on to Partygate because, of course, as uh, NHS 100K was saying there. Uh, it's, a, it's a distraction, uh, but um, let's talk about it for a second anyway, uh, because during the uh, furore yesterday afternoon, uh, when Boris was supposed to be speaking to Vladimir Putin, he was in the House of Commons uh, to, to deal with the, uh, the report on Partygate. Uh, let's have a look at this video clip of what he had to say about Keir Starmer. This leader of the opposition, a former Director of Public Prosecutions, Mr. Speaker, he spent most of his time prosecuting journalists and failing to prosecute Jimmy Savile. Now that resulted in quite a lot of uh, pushback from, from many, many people, but uh, not least from the Speaker because uh, a point of order was raised over that statement in the House of Commons. Uh, and let's just have a listen to what the Speaker had to say. Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, yesterday the Prime Minister um, answered questions in this House on the initial Sue Gray report and we saw the usual uh, bluster and uh, uh, thrashing about stream of unconsciousness that we're used to. Um, but in reply to one particular question, I think from my right honourable friend, the Leader of the Opposition, mm. um, in thrashing about, he threw in the question of Jimmy Savile. Now, actually, I think he was, found out he was factually wrong on that. Yeah. But there are many, many victims of that awful, awful person. Yeah. And for him to use that, um, that scandal and that tragedy um, in the way that it, I felt, was um, inappropriate, tasteless but perhaps out of order, and I'd seek your guidance on his use of that awful, awful example. 
Can I remind the House I am not responsible for members' contributions and will seek not to intervene unless something is said which is disorderly. Procedurally, nothing disorderly occurred, but such allegations should not be made lightly, especially in view of the guidance of Erskine May about good temper, moderation being the characteristics of a parliamentary debate. While they may not have been disorderly, I am far from satisfied that the comments in question were appropriate on this occasion. I want to see more compassionate, reasonable politics in this House, and the sort of comment can only inflame opinions and generate disregard for this House. I've got to say, I want a nicer Parliament, and the only way we can get a nicer Parliament is being more honourable in the debates that we have. And please, let us show each other respect as well as tolerance. So I don't really know where to start with that, but, but uh, basically it's a response to the utter childishness that there has been in the House of Commons. Now, there is a whole question to be answered over Keir Starmer and Jimmy Savile and, and, and what happened there. At the end of the day, Keir Starmer was... Uh, the head of the Department for Public Pro Prosecutions at the time that Savile was not the prosecuted. Came forward, uh, yes, yeah. indeed. And now there have been a whole bunch of staff from within the Department of Public Prosecutions that, who were serving at the time who said that he took no part in the decision-making process uh, and so on, and they're all writing to his rescue. But uh, the, 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 Brian, the commander of the captain of the ship is the captain of the ship holds and ultimate holds ultimate responsibility. Yeah, and that, that seems like it was a failure within that organisation. And he cannot simply walk away from it, from people saying, well, it wasn't his decision. Uh, it was a reflection of the culture within the thing. But as for, as for Parliament itself, uh, there is uh, there was there's the, the complaint from the Speaker there about the standards within Parliament and the, the pathetic behaviour of people, of MPs within Parliament, but also... There was another complaint from the speaker um, with respect to the behaviour of the government uh, and its uh, behaviour with respect to parliament and the fact, for example, that government is making statements to the press without ever briefing parliament on what its agenda is. It's spending money, it's making... Uh, and so the press has become the way for the government to make an announcement about uh, whatever it's doing. And this is, from a procedural point of view, not correct. So there seems to be a complete... Uh, disregard for everybody within that non-functional institution at this point in time. Disregard for constitutional procedures in the House of Parliament. Yes. Um, but uh, as for Boris himself, uh, the pressure's building from within his own party. So here's Tobias Elwood tweeting this out uh, on the 31st. Uh, and he's saying the Prime Minister promised to publish the Sue Gray report in full. Uh, and he's saying that he had lost confidence. Well, that has now resulted in uh, a letter, apparently, according to uh, many mainstream outlets, uh, a letter of no confidence in the Prime Minister. Apparently, other Tory MPs have submitted similar letters and so on. And Peter Bone, then, who is a serial uh, bill producer, he, he absolutely pushes through or puts through private members' bills hand over fist. But he's now issued one called the Prime Minister Accountability to the House of Commons Bill. Uh, and... Uh, so the pressure building on him and apparently the fallout from it is uh, going beyond Parliament itself uh, because uh, here's the mail saying the rot is set in, Call, calls Grove for Cressida Dick to quit after latest report 
exposes more evidence of institutional racism and sexism in Scotland Yard. Frankly, Cressida Dick should never have had the job in the first place after the Jean-Charles de Menezes fiasco, which she was in charge of that operation and a man was murdered. Uh, so what she's doing in the job in the first place, I have no idea. How many years ago did that take place? Well, you know why she's in the job? Because she's a common purpose trained future uh, leader. Mark. Absolutely. That's why she's in the job. Uh, so, uh, so really the calls for her to be uh, uh, quit uh, are probably about 15 years uh, out of date. But uh, nonetheless, I think this is part and parcel of uh, the establishment in this country, basically at civil war with each other. Well, countries being um, disassembled from the inside, I think is the key thing, Mike, and chaos and confusion is ideal for that policy to uh, uh, to be carried out. We're going to be, we're going to be dealing with that in greater detail in forthcoming news programmes. But let's just remind people, uh, we talked about this briefly the other day, but let's remind ourselves that we've now got professional psychologists challenging the government for using applied psychology as a political we weapon. And this little email exchange is where a psychologist said to the British Psychological Society, the so-called regulatory body for psychology, why are you doing nothing about this political use of dangerous, quite dangerous psychology? Um, they got a response back from the British Psychological Society, uh, which uh, Gary Sidley, the man who'd uh, worked on the letter to them, uh, said an in-depth inspection of Dr. Paxton's defence of the British Psychological Society reveals that it's an evasive, disingenuous and wholly unconvincing reply. So bear that in mind with the fact that this man and the people you're talking about in Westminster, Mike, running amok are using applied psychology to change the way we think and behave and we don't even know what they are doing. But even the Telegraph can't grip the problem because it switches from the use of applied psychology to just saying, well, they were putting out nasty adverts. That's what the subheadline is about. And uh, there was an example of one of them embedded in the text. It's not about adverts. This is the use of widespread political applied psychology. There is some consternation. This is William Wagg, who's chair of the public. Can I just correct you on that? Because I'm sure it's a Freudian slip, but it is William Wagg, W-R-A-G-G. -G. So, so, uh, but I'm sure he is a bit of a wag. Well, it, it, the typo might be mine. I'll admit that. Um, so we'll double check that. But uh, uh, I think he said, I think the central issue is how nudge sits within parliamentary democracy and ministerial accountability. So there's the nice word. It's just a bit of nudging. No, this is malicious use of applied psychology. He says, normally it's quite straightforward to know where lines of accountability are between the law, uh, parliamentarians scrutinizing the law and the public following it. So he's on the right theme, but he doesn't really understand what he's dealing with. And this is a wider question of how much in a parliamentary democracy sits outside of that approach. So this is the area that we should be paying attention to, that people like Boris Johnson, who uh, disregarded all the rules to do with COVID, can use applied psychology to change the way we think and behave. OK, if you like what the UK Column does, and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. And there are options to help us out there. That would be very much appreciated. Uh, also, uh, share our material on the various platforms if you could. Uh, or if you'd like to support us by picking up something from the UK Column shop, that would be fantastic as well.
Um, so, Brian, uh, the UK truckers um, have got a convoy coming. Indeed, they have. Well, many people are very uh, pleased to see this because uh, following on from the excellent work of the Canadian truckers, it seems that the uh, baton's been picked up in UK. And so uh, this apparently is uh, to show the scale of, of what appears to be a similar action by trucker truckers in the UK. So Saturday, the 5th of February, confirmed convoy locations and look at all those places, Newcastle, Middlesbrough, Leeds, Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham, London, Land, uh, Dudno, Cardiff, Exeter, Bournemouth. Uh, so the details there if you freeze the screen. And there's another part of the advert, United Kingdom Freedom Convoy heading to London, Saturday, the 5th of February, 2022. So we're going to say well done, the truckers for standing up. Yes. Well, uh, Prepare yourself. Uh, this is a fantastic photograph. Boris is in Ukraine today, of course. Uh, he is there uh, with his black mask on, uh, along with uh, Mr. Zelensky, uh, with his black mask on, uh, except when they don't have their black masks on because they're uh, properly socially distanced, except when they're not properly socially distanced and they don't have their black masks on. So uh, he got off a plane. There he is getting off the plane uh, with uh, a military uh, escort with lots of masks on. Mike, I've got to say, it, the state of that man is appalling. His demeanour, his stance, his haircut, his scrumpled shirt and tie. This man is a disgrace and he needs to go. Um, he's not incompetent. He's very dangerous. He's doing the political bidding that he was put in place to do. But who would deliver such a product to Russia I mean, what do those people there in the Guard of Honour think of that shambles do, do coming down the steps? Yes, yes. So anyway, he's in Ukraine to, to uh, warn about Putin. He gave a press conference, joint press conference with uh, Zelensky, uh, and he said the world must face up to the grim reality of 100,000 troops at the border. Are they at the border? It's hard to say. Uh, and uh, there's going to be, you know, any military incursion would be a political disaster, a humanitarian disaster, a military disaster. Uh, we have to face the grim reality as we stand here today with more than 100,000 troops gathering at your border in perhaps the biggest demonstration of hostility towards Ukraine in our lifetimes. Uh, the potential uh, deployment dwarfs the 30,000 troops that Russia sent to invade Crimea in 2014, since at that time, of course, as everybody knows, 13,000 Ukrainians have been killed and Ukraine has been plunged into nearly a decade of war. It goes without saying that a further Russian invasion of Ukraine would be a political disaster uh, and so on. Alongside other countries, we are preparing a package of sanctions and other measures to be enacted the moment the first Russian toe cap crosses further into Ukrainian territory. I'm sure Putin is quaking in his boots. Um, but look, we reminded everybody, or we, we told everybody on Monday about uh, Liz Truss, uh, reminded that she was speaking at the Lowy Institute in Australia uh, a week ago, uh, and that she happened to mention uh, a new trilateral uh, defence agreement between UK, Poland and Ukraine. Um, and uh, we highlighted uh, the uh, Council on Geostrategy uh, handy map that they produced to show what that would mean. And we also pointed out that uh, the Right Honourable Tobias Elwood, who we've already mentioned in this programme, uh, was on the advisory council of that. Um, Tobias Elwood, by the way, a couple of days ago, uh, publishing an article uh, in uh, the Mail on Sunday, NATO must move troops in now or face, sorry, must move troops in now or face Cold War, uh, where Russia and China are potent allies. So he's not only pushing the Russian enemy narrative, but the China er enemy narrative. 
Uh, and of course, we made the point that with respect to the uh, the Britain, UK, uh, Ukraine, and Polish uh, defence pact, that this goes on. Uh, this has been going on for since twenty. Now, was that nineteen ninety six? Was the first time it was mentioned in the mainstream press. But the new updated pact has now made the head the, the mainstream headlines since uh, the UK column mentioned it. Uh, here's SwissInfo.ch. Uh, Britain, Poland, and Ukraine preparing trilateral security pact, Kiev says. Uh, and uh, another headline from DW, Ukraine seeks trilateral partnership with Poland and UK. So let's just understand where we are with this. Uh, Liz Trust mentions it at the Lowy Institute in Australia. Uh, and uh, the next thing we know, Boris is over in Ukraine. Uh, well, what's he doing there? Is he there just to make speeches about uh, the same speeches that he's made everywhere else about Putin? Or is he there to make put the final uh, cross T's and dotted I's on and this? And no agreement? discussion, no debate in Parliament, Parliament on this indeed. at all. Um, uh, which brings us to Jeremy Hunt, uh, because, of course, the, the narrative has to continue. And Jeremy Hunt, uh, as we know, former Foreign Secretary, has published an article in The Telegraph, uh, We Must Hold Firm Against Russian Threats. Uh, the price of invasion uh, must be too high to be bearable for Russia. My Telegraph article today, uh, we must hold firm against Russian threats. So let's just briefly have a look at what uh, Jeremy Hunt, uh, the former foreign secretary, had to say. He said, Bill Clinton once told me the key thing was to look not at the headlines, but at the trend lines. It's a useful exercise when it comes to working out what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, the headlines tell us that 100,000 Russian troops are poised to invade its democratic neighbor. The trend line tells us it's part of a well-worn pattern of expansionism. The it's just the hypocrisy is unbelievable. Russia, how many, how far has Russia, Brian, tell me this, how far has Russia expanded its borders? Well, we can, since, we can since, say since the we, end of the Cold yeah, we War. Can, we can say during the Second World War, certainly it did as part of a right, defense of, of its own homeland. But apart from that, when... When has it? Exactly. How far has NATO expanded its borders? Well, as, uh, because as we mentioned on Monday, NATO now has borders, apparently. Yes, and, and NATO is, is keen to keep pushing those borders eastward because they're now at the point of being on the border of Russia. So it's a NATO expansion. So who has but, this well-worn pattern of expansionism? It's not the well, Russians, but... But this is why we can't trust politicians, well, right? because absolutely. they won't tell the truth at any stage. Absolutely. So let's look at the next bit. Uh, that is what happened after the murder of uh, Alexander Litvinenko in 2006, the invasion of two provinces of Georgia in 2008, the invasion of Crimea in 2014, and arguably the poisoning of Sergei Skripal in 2018. And every single one of those events, the Western British US narrative has been laughable. But anyway, let's continue. He went on to say the Russians will do whatever they think they can get away with without having to put up with any long-term consequences. I just find the comments by these people so childish. There's no maturity in them. There's no statesmanship in them. There's no uh, political experience in them. They're just producing little sound bites that Bill Clinton chatted to him what, over a over a cappuccino and a bit of pizza something. And, and said, this is what you need to think about. And I remembered that, and I'm now going to tell the public it's fact. This is ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we need to be as good as our word. Do you have a word? I'm not sure about that. The one disastrous mistake we could make now would be to reward Russian aggression with a diplomatic concession, say, on future Ukrainian NATO membership. So once again, you know, the fact that the Russians have made it clear that that would be an, an unacceptable step too far. 
uh, a British representative is saying to hell with that, we're doing it anyway. And anyway, that's the uh, Britain and the United States position. Things are a little different in France and other European countries, Germany in particular. So uh, Putin and Macron were speaking uh, on by phone on Monday afternoon, I think it was. The, and the quote is, the president's continued exchanging views on the situation around Ukraine and issues related to providing long-term legally binding security guarantees to Russia. Uh, Vladimir Putin once again set out the principled approaches to those issues. The two leaders agreed to continue con contacts by telephone and promptly uh, consider the possibility of meeting in person. So there's definitely detente sort of within the European continent and, and Russia. They're not taking anything like the same position as everybody else. Uh, but Alex, uh, as we mentioned uh, last week, Alex was taking part in one of the uh, sessions with Reiner Fulmich. Um, and uh, well, he was talking about uh, Germany's relationship in this whole area. So let's just have a, a listen to a couple of clips from what Alex had to say here. The Brits used their contact in American intelligence to try to get rid of Trump because of the uh, issues that Thomas Roper has just masterfully outlined. Uh, at UK Column, in fact, we were, in fact, about the only people to cover the question of European military unification in the last five years, particularly how it was in Britain's interest since 1947 to, to pursue that policy. We've written a number of articles that you can find on ukcolumn.org about that. And uh, one of the points that we made then was we showed footage of the think tank, the Royal United Services Institute, the military think tank in London, where a guest speaker from the European Council on Foreign Relations, so Soros has set up a CFR in Europe as well, uh, named Nick Whitney, gave a speech in which he said, Trump, uh, Trump has now been elected, we can't stop it, but if he cannot be house trained, then the British and French need to give the European Union their nuclear deterrent. At the same time, Deutsche Welle started proclaiming in English, it is time for the British nuclear arsenal to become effectively a, German, a joint German asset. Uh, that's not in the interest, I know Germany very well to, to know that nobody in Germany wants that. Uh, it's, it's in the interest of a small faction of your power-crazed elite. If we could put it in very general terms, I will never be able to be exhaustive today, but just stop me and ask questions. The general tendency since both world wars is that you have a problem to tackle in Germany itself, with power-crazed individuals, you very well know it. Basically, the way they have gone is some have decided they will cling on to the Anglo-Saxon domination of the world, such as it still is, and go with that. And then we get claims about the, the so-called Souveränitätslüge, that Germany isn't really independent, has some truth to it. Okay, Another faction is more continuation of the Third Reich, but they're not interested in Germany territorially. They're interested in owning technology, intellectual property, blackmail, and control over Anglo-American politicians and deep state figures so that they can bring about, uh, in some sense, a continuation of Third Reich objectives, particularly with reference to Ukraine and Eastern Europe. So there's basically, you have two lots of evil guys to deal with in Germany. One uh, masquerades as, as uh, allies of the Anglos, and the other basically tries to steer the Anglos behind the scenes. What are your thoughts on that? Well, this is this is uh, Alex really throwing a big rock into the pond to get people to discuss the fact that it isn't the politics we see 
that the mainstream media is pushing. It isn't that politics that's driving what's happening. It's this deep politics, whether we're talking about the World Economic Forum or the Trilateral Commission or the Ford Foundation, whatever we bring in that is controlling the politics, this is what is really driving the agenda. So I, I think he was very correct and brave to uh, throw that in because he's been quite tough on his German host. Uh, so let's listen to a second little section from that. And Germany is in this unique position because for historical and geographical reasons, it always wavers between these two. Which of these two top dogs are we going to go with? You know, this all sounds, uh, it's very simple, really. When, when it, it boils, it, it, this boils down to megalomaniac maniac, uh, behavior, yes. people who are, in my view, completely crazy. Um, but is it really as simple as that? Is it really that uh, some of the people who have gotten to the top of the hierarchy, both in business and in politics, are simply psychopaths? who are, like in a James Bond movie, trying to rule the world. It sounds like it. I, th I think so. And there's also a level of people who will tolerate the rise of psychopaths. Yeah. A classic example is an old wartime GCHQ man who lived to past 100 years old, and who was very close to UK column, called Harry Beckhoff, B-E-C-K-H-O-U-G-H. After the Second World War, because he was one of the German speakers in uh, the wartime precursor of GCHQ, he was sent to the British occupied zone of Germany to help with the process of denazification and re-education of the elite. And he became a personal friend of Konrad Adenauer there. Now, no matter how, how anti-German you are, you cannot say Konrad Adenauer was a Nazi. That would be a step too far. Mm -hmm. However, Adenauer did confess to Beckhoff that he employed 134 senior ex-Nazis just in the Kanzleramt. In the, and the Kanzlerei. Um, this is, is an example to illustrate your, the answer to your question, which is that, is it just psychopaths? Well, there are a lot of psychopaths. I would say the 134 re-employed senior Nazis were psychopaths, but Adenauer knew jolly well what they were, and yet he still used them for the sake of continuity, uh, smooth government, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Even more, uh, Adenauer said, because of their past in the Nazi time, they were controllable. They, they never would have done their own agenda. Yeah, so he took them because they, he took them under control because of that. Makes perfect sense because if you know that if you know the skeletons in the closet, you know how to control these people. Well, let's balance that with the other big revelation that Harry Beckhoff gave us, which cuts the other way, which is that uh, Sir Edward Heath, later the prime minister who brought Britain into the European Economic Community was a controlled asset by some strand of German intelligence since before the Second World War. It turns out that he was compromised by a homosexual encounter in Germany in 1939. And Beckhoff talks about this in quite some detail in his wow. books and writings. And many people thought this was just a paranoid conspiracy theory until a police chief, Mike Veal in Britain, uh, came out with a report on Operation Conifer after Sir Edward Heath's death, which confirmed that they had six independent witnesses that child Sir Edward Heath was uh, an abusive pederast, wow. a child molester. Right. So th this has been well covered on UK Column and a number of other reliable free media, reliable new media sources with documentation. 
this it's this well-known stuff. So Mike Veal came out in public and said, of course, he got a lot of flack for it, but he did come out and say that if he had still been alive, he died in 2005, if he'd still been alive, he would have faced police questioning for... Yeah, so uh, Alex, going right to the heart of the matter there, are we dealing with politicians who are elected and do their job or are we dealing with a totally different breed of individual? Yes, so if you want to uh, see the whole discussion... Uh, have a look at uh, this website, uh, 2020tube.de, uh, and the one you want to look for is uh, Session 89, uh, Chess Moves. Um, so uh, do have a look at that. Okay, now, look, just uh, switch back to us. Yes, thanks, Stephanie, because I just want to move forward because we're, we're out of time on this a little bit. I want to move on to uh, uh, Green New Deal stuff. And this is uh, from uh, the South African government. Uh, mining industry can contribute to just energy transition, uh, says uh, Mantashi. Uh, this is uh, uh, the, uh, sorry, the uh, Department of Mineral Resources and Energy Minister, uh, Guido Mantashi. Uh, and he, uh, in this transcript of, of a, a discussion, uh, basically said that, you know, you want to have green energy in, in Africa? Well, it's going to have to take a backseat to uh, a, a reliable power supply. Um, so he said, uh, if we're going to deal with climate change, there must be security of energy supply. Then we can navigate the transition more systematically and in a structured way. But if there's energy poverty, uh, there's still about 13% of South Africans who have no access to energy. We must deal with that and we must deal with coming down from high carbon emissions to low carbon emissions. If we ignore the poverty, he said, uh, and introduce programs to address climate change, we'll face a revolt. Uh, our message will not reach our people. Our people want access to energy, affordable, sustainable, develop, uh, dependable. Then we can talk about how we clean it. Uh, but if we don't have access to energy, we have no choice. So absolutely clear the position there. Yeah. Uh, this has been the African position with COP26 as well. We're not that Africa is not going to uh, abandon coal and other reliable sources of energy until uh, and to deal with so-called climate change. Uh, until they've dealt with their economic problems first. But this uh, resulted in a backlash. So the, here's Fin24, and the headline is uh, CSIR denies Mantashi claim of destabilizing energy debt and foreign funds. Because one of the allegations uh, that M uh, Mantashi made in a separate uh, interview for uh, the uh, South African uh, media outlet City Press, he said that uh, basically London-based uh, hedge fund called the Children Investment Fund uh, Foundation uh, was uh, involved in uh, trying to undermine uh, this their position. So he said that uh, uh, money from London is uh, channeled into an institution based at the University of Cape Town, which funds a number of projects, including aspects of the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research and other civil society groups to destabilize the work of his government department. Uh, and he mentioned uh, a uh, an organization called Hashtag Uproot the DMRE. So here is the, uh, oh, sorry, I, I should have put that uh, overlay as a, uh, as a, uh, a white, but, yeah. but don't worry. Uh, uh, basically what I want to show here is who is funding this Hashtag Uproot the DMRE. Uh, this is the, the government department that he is the minister for. Uh, and you'll find at the top of the list, very close to the top of the list, is Extinction Rebellion. Um, so, uh, well, who funds Extinction Rebellion, of course? Well, of course it is uh, the Children's Fund uh, and uh, TCI Fund Management, who has, uh, well, this man in charge. Uh, and uh, 
Chris, well, Sir, Chris uh, Bowden, and well, who've put money into that particular organization? Well, it's, it's long been rec recognized that there's quite a bit of Rothschild money going into there. Other, yeah. other big societal changers, uh, Christopher Hone, and uh, of course that organization involved in the breakup of uh, ABN AMRO in the Netherlands, uh, also involved in uh, the British takeover, the British, uh, what do we call it, Luxembourg's uh, steel by Indian metal steel, of course, as part of the deal with British steel. So, so you know, this this is a, a person and an organisation funding another one, funding the various uh, societal change organisations. Yes, change agents, and we we often find this in our research that where we start off looking at something which appears to be happening as a result of government policy in two steps. You're finding people connected with uh, uh, hedge hedge funds and uh, a lot of money. Well, let's end with uh, what the BBC's uh, uh, um, professional reporting is about. And a couple of people sent this through to me. Stacey Dooley, this is uh, um, BBC Three, if I got that right. Uh, just to see what this is about. Um, after a secure and settled life in the classroom, mum of two, Anna, explains why she decided to leave her job as a teacher to sell lacy lingerie to men. Stacy also meets Anna's boss, Jules, who set up the company after realising that other guys might share his passion for delicate knickers. This is the standard of, of a multi-billion pound news organisation. Uh, this is the Lady OK featured her where it, its headline said, Stacey Dooley fears she's hanging on for dear life as a new show is announced. And uh, she said she's thrilled she's coming back to TV. I know we've all been having really important and valid conversations, certainly over the last couple of years, about inclusivity and the importance of representation. So presumably now she's representing uh, the men who are keen on the lacy knickers. But I do believe that BBC Three have been saying a lot of what we're saying now for a very long time. Oh, that's all good. But she's hanging on for dear life. The target audience is 16 to 34. They're all interested in men wearing lacy knickers, apparently. She's 35 in March. So every time I get a new show, I'm thinking, yay, I'm not on BBC Four yet. But yes, I've got really good working relationship with BBC Three. I started there when I was around 19. And I've worked with them for about 15 years. It's mad, isn't it? I never take it for granted. Well, it's not only mad, it's disgusting that people have to pay a license fee to listen to this material. Well, uh, of course they don't have to Well, listen. yeah, okay, yeah. but you take the point. Yeah. Um, and uh, we'll end on a cheerful note because a lot of people are uh, sending us images of banners supporting the UK column. This one somewhere near Cardiff on what's probably a a railway bridge over the road. Can we trust the media? Is the government lying? Do you feel something's not right? Well, if you've got questions, go to ukcolumn.org. So we're going to thank uh, the banner creators very much. It's good to see the support out there. Debbie, before we close, any last comment from you on anything we've covered or anything you'd like to say to the audience? Oh, do you know what? I mean, it's it's gobsmacking, isn't it? And it just seems to be that we're that they're targeting the worried well. Um, they're targeting the public. It's absolutely I have no words. But I tell you what, one word I will say is where's witty in all of this? Because you know, like the Where's Wally books, we seem to be missing 
Chris Whitty, we're missing. Jonathan Van Tam's gone back to Nottingham. They've all gone. So where have they all gone? They've, Where's run, a they've run away, Debbie, because they realise that the public is waking up. They've run away. Yes. We better end there. Yes. Okay, we'll be back in a few minutes uh, on the live stream with a little bit of extra. And otherwise, see you at 1pm on Friday. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye-bye.